my experience, we actually had more problems with fraud at the polling sites, which not much. We haven't really had, you know, extensive history in the state of Washington fraud. Uh, but what was interesting, we talked earlier about the gubernatorial uh, recount that we ended up doing. And needless to say, everybody went back, you know, newspapers, uh, the parties, the, some interest groups, as well as Secretary of State's office, the counties. That's former Washington State Secretary of State, Sam Sumner Reed. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Sam Reed was Secretary of State between 2001 and 2013, and he was instrumental in moving Washington towards a vote-by-mail system. Has he seen evidence of fraud in Washington or in the other four states that rely exclusively on vote-by-mail? Also joining us today is Pat McGee, who invented and developed software programs. He worked at Microsoft and is co-inventor of three Microsoft patents. He has developed software systems for over 200 companies, is also an author of a couple of books called Brain Dancing. Work smarter and learn faster are the major themes. Back with Sam Reed in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Sam Reed served three terms as Washington Secretary of State between 2001 and 2013. During his tenure, Sam presided over three monumental issues. First, in 2004, the closest gubernatorial election in Washington history and U.S. history occurred, and ultimately, Democrat Christine Gregoire was declared the winner by 133 votes after several recounts. Second, Sam was instrumental in introducing the top two primary system which we have today. It took two trips to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in March 2008, it became law. Third, and what we are going to talk about today is vote by mail, which is clearly becoming an extremely controversial issue as we head into the national elections this November. Through Sam Reed's leadership, Washington is one of the first states in the country to vote entirely by mail. Oregon, Utah, Colorado, and Hawaii also vote by mail. With COVID-19 as a major concern, other states are scrambling to pull together a vote-by-mail option. Trump is saying that vote-by-mail is filled with fraud. Let's go to the source and talk with Sam about that. But first, Ohio held a primary this spring that relied on vote-by-mail as a major form of voting, and I asked how it went. In Ohio, by the way, it's working out well. It's a little more clumsy because, as you say, it really isn't vote-by-mail per se. It is people using the absentee ballot system, which, of course, is comparable, but vote-by-mail is much a much slicker, organized a system where they they really are set up to process these ballots. So I'm sure in Ohio it's going to take them quite a while to actually certify the election. But I read yesterday quite an article in the New York Times about Governor DeWine and everything, and basically saying that it, it went well. 
Paul, in addition to the states you mentioned, there are a number of other states in the Western United States that are partially vote by mail, or at least have such a wide open absentee system that it ends up that many of the counties in those states are, are vote by mail. We actually started here uh, in 1983. I was in my first term of Jefferson County Auditor, and we county auditors went to legislature with the support of Secretary of State Ralph Monroe, advocating that uh, we be given the authority to use vote by mail for nonpartisan uh, special elections. In other words, uh, it could be bonds and levies and, and such, uh, but not for partisan elections. It was quite a battle. It was viewed as, uh, needless to say, particularly by old, some of the old timers in both parties as, as being kind of a radical notion. Uh, we, in fact, when we ended up passing in the Senate, we did it on, on getting a reconsideration vote because we lost the first time through. But we got it through, we used it, it was quite successful. So then we went back and got it expanded, got it expanded finally, and uh, got it so that uh, counties, could, counties could choose to vote by mail. And, uh, and then finally, uh, I think it was 2005, we got it passed for the entire state to be vote by mail. And it has been very successful in the state of Washington. Uh, the voters love it, and, uh, and so I'm very proud of this system. Well, you should be, uh, being a leader on this for so long, and then reading this history, what you just said, it takes a long time for these things to occur. It doesn't happen overnight. And as I was reading uh, some of the history on this put out by the Secretary of State's office, it does come up to top of mind that 1983, that we had started this. Again, I wouldn't have guessed that in terms of just reflecting without reading this. What do you think about the chances for fraud and some of the charges being made. Are the other states, are they really happy with it too? Uh, the other states are very happy with it. Oregon uh, basically followed the same timeline as we did, other than they went statewide earlier, and it was because the county clerks, were, well, the county auditors in our state, uh, got an initiative on the ballot and people voted for it. So they, they went earlier than we did to go statewide. Uh, my experience, we actually had more problems with fraud at the polling sites, which not much. We haven't really had you know, extensive history in the state of Washington of fraud. Uh, but what was interesting, we talked earlier about the gubernatorial uh, recount that we ended up doing. And needless to say, everybody went back, you know, newspapers, uh, the parties, the, some interest groups, as well as Secretary of State's office, the counties, and basically looked at every ballot and every count. And what we found out was that at the polling site, there were some people who didn't sign in properly who, who must have voted. There were people who, who uh, signed in and then didn't vote for some reason or the ballots didn't appear. Uh, there were people who weren't supposed to vote directly because they weren't in the poll book. There were people who weren't supposed to vote there. They were supposed to cast uh, a ballot, hand it back to the election board worker to put in a secure place for it to be considered by the canvassing board. 
so that this person then had the opportunity to, to say they were legit and they should be voting there. Or uh, more often what happens was people show up at the wrong poll site and uh, uh, they vote and then what happens is the county then, you know, if it's within the county, moves it over to the appropriate you know, precinct to be counted. If it's out of county, they send it to the other county. Well, what happened during that election, we found, was people went ahead and just dropped it right into the poll box. So what we had is people voting on races that they were not entitled to vote on, like for legislative candidates or county candidates, uh, whatever. Uh, Fascinating. Now, in terms of vote by mail, uh, we have a chance to look very carefully at every ballot and make sure it's being counted in the correct jurisdiction because we have the time to do it and uh, there's a very thorough review of, of each ballot. We also require a signature on every ballot, and then some people I think are skeptical about, but uh, what is true is every ballot is looked at and, and compared to their original signature, every ballot, not samples, not skimming or whatever, but they carefully have somebody, you know, who's election workers of the county who look at this and compare it. They are trained by the Washington State Patrol on how to recognize fraudulent signatures. Uh, so it, there's a lot of uh, security in that respect, but also uh, when they're in the courthouse, uh, like they are, the vote by mail, they are put in a locked facility. So there's a lot of security. When they're out at the polling sites, they're out at, at in schools and community centers and all that, and you just don't have that kind of security that you have with vote by mail. Now, some people worry, well, what about the post office? Well, the post office obviously has a real interest in making sure this is right, so they also have very, very tight security standards for how they handle ballots. I can't believe that we're still debating in other states about when you vote digitally or by computer and things, there's not a paper backup. Now, if you want to really cinch the deal and have faith in the elections, you would just think that would be mandatory, a paper ballot that would be a backup to any voting. Well, we certainly have moved in that direction. Uh, after the Florida experience in 2000, uh, with all the problems they had, the uh, United States Congress pass an act that sent funds out to the states to improve on their election systems and to get better equipment. Uh, unfortunately, Congress said that, you know, they particularly want people to look at direct electronic, well, which means the touch screens, which do not have a paper trail or anything like that. Well, in my state, given the experience that I had had, uh, as I said, with recounts and all that, uh, I said, no way are we going to do that. But we did end up, because counties could choose to do it, we ended up with, I think, Snohomish and maybe one or two other counties doing it. But even they, they did it, and then they realized it was a mistake, and they very quickly changed back to another system. But other states kind of were stuck with it because they would spent a huge amount of money but we moved very quickly, and it was quite a discussion. The National Association of Secretaries of State 
uh, throughout that time period after this that um, we really needed a paper trail and there were organizations also who were making it a cause to be advocates for that. What do you miss about being Secretary of State? I really loved that job and I was I, I feel I was a lucky man to do it. Uh, all of us you know, aspire in our lives to do something, a job that we love where we feel, uh, gosh, you know, I'm getting paid for this because this is actually fun. And that's the way I felt both about Secretary of State, but also about being Thurston County Auditor. I, I really care about elections and, and always have and deeply believe in its importance, obviously, for an oper operating uh, democracy. Also, I'm in the history and, uh, and both, again, as Secretary of State and County Auditor are dealing with uh, all kinds of historical documents and records and such. And uh, so I love that as well as just the people you work with. And, uh, uh, and one thing that people sometimes are surprised, they get a little skeptical when I say it is, when I would go out in the communities all around the state, I just really enjoyed People were so glad to see it. You know, the stereotype is because I was a politician, people, all oh, those darn politicians. Well, that really wasn't the response. They were pleased to have a statewide elected official in their community and glad to have the opportunity to talk and for me to listen to them. So I miss all that too. That was great fun. My thanks to Sam Reed for sharing his wisdom and experience with us today on voting. Sam is living currently in Olympia with his wife, Margie. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. And welcome back, everyone, to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. I'm the producer, Benny Mathers, and we're going to check back in with Paul. And that was an amazing interview you had with uh, Sam Reed. And uh, how's he doing these days overall with what's going on as well? Well, he's doing great. He's on a number of boards. He's very much involved in the uh, public service. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's been. He was involved in public service through his entire life. And that's why... He's really a model for what I think a public servant should mm -hmm. be. So he's doing great. Still sharp. I love I love listening to him. Yes. He's quite a smart man. By the way, I did my first job out of college. I worked for Sam Reed. Oh, did you? That's kind of cool. So I learned a lot from him. But then I took another choice, Benny. I went into business for myself. You after, did? After, gosh, working for Sam. I kid him and I say, you know, after working for you, I had to go run my own business. But um, then I worked for the county and I worked for Metro and I worked for a nonprofit. Then I went into business for myself. I want to talk today about the financial part of going into business. And it's not so much about getting the loan at the bank mm -hmm. because you're not going to get a loan from the bank. The adage is if you need money from the bank, you're not going to get it. If you have enough money, they're all over you to lend you money. I'm not trying to beat up on the banks necessarily because I read statistics that 
80% of businesses fail. So they have to be really cautious about lending a lot of money. So I get that. Correct. But I'm just submitting that you don't build your business in trying to think you're going to get money from the bank. That's all. Sure. And one of the things I've talked about is I want you to take a look at a business that does not require a lot of startup costs or big loans. And uh, what I talk about is a boutique business. With that, keeping your overhead low. One of the ways you can do that is work out of your house. Now we see a lot of people doing that and they're working for companies. You may get used to that now, whereas you didn't think you could do that before. It is isolating and it can have its challenges. But overall, I think uh, it's something that you have to make a choice on. Keeping your overhead low is absolutely critical to success. Here's an example. If I say you want to have an office as going forward, let's say the average cost is $5,000 a month. That's $60,000 a year. Times that by 10 years, if you're in business that long, that's $600,000 you're paying to someone else. That's real money. You can be putting that into marketing and doing a lot of different things with the resources that you're putting into an office. So I'm just submitting, really keep your overhead as low as you possibly can. Now, on the flip side of that, don't be cheap. Pay better than the average wage. Hire free agents. You don't need to have employees necessarily in the beginning, but I'm teeing you up to try to get you to three to five years. And if you want to go off and get a lot bigger, become the next next Jeff Bezos, that's great. I can't coach you on there because I never did that. But I want to get you to that three to five year mark where then you can start making those choices. One of the things is, is that your business attire, how you look and present yourself is very important. So don't be cheap on clothes and appearance and things like that. That's where you put your money into rather than paying overhead. While publishing, I sat between two people. One was like me. We didn't have a lot of money. So we had to really focus and work very hard selling advertising. The other person was married to a very wealthy person. He would come in late in the morning, sleep early in the afternoon, never saw him on weekends. So basically, he didn't sell any advertising. He didn't have that fear that he had to get out there and work really hard to make things happen. So I think that's extremely important. So those are a couple of things on finances. I will pick up on more of that as we go forward. Again, the book is called The Self-Employment for You. If you want to get it, I know it's a shameless plug, but it is on Amazon. It's only like $7. So um, take a look at it and give me feedback too. I'd like to hear from that. Patrick McGee has invented and developed software programs. He worked at Microsoft and is co-inventor of three Microsoft patents. He has developed and implemented software systems for over 200 companies. He is also an author of a couple of books called Brain Dancing, Work Smarter and Learn Faster. I first asked him about the principles for starting a tech business. It's not just tech, though. Many of these ideas do apply to any business. Technology businesses tend to be more challenging, in my view. And so I felt it was needed, especially for that case. Many of these apply to any type of business. Like, for example, I really liked your first one, just starting out with market testability. And uh, what you asked the question basically is, what is limiting your ability to test your ideas now. Could you expand on that? The biggest risk for any startup 
is to have assumptions about the viability of your business and then spend a lot of time and money proceeding down a path without having any feedback about the viability. You may have an outstanding product or service, but if you don't have a way to talk to people that would benefit from that, a lot of people in, have a lot of decision-making authority get 100 calls a day asking for their time. And so if you have high barriers to your market, then you're not going to be able to validate your ideas. What makes you think that you're right? Can you validate that you're right objectively? I don't know why people don't do more of this. Is there a market for this before you get some idea that's going to be successful? The other thing that you pointed out, the customer pain level, that really hit home to me because I say all the time to people thinking about starting a business is that it's not about you. There's a lot of myths out there, and one of them is follow your passion and the money will follow. And uh, what makes you happy? That's not going to even make you money in the marketplace just because you're happy. I will add to what you just said. If a company doesn't know they have a problem, it's a lot harder to sell them on your solution to that problem. I was reading uh, Kim Lorenz's book, Tireless, recently, and he talked about we had a plan for saving customers money, and we could clearly show this to customers if given a chance. So I thought, wow, if every business started with that kind of clarity, where they had identified a target market, they understood that market, the needs of that market, they developed a plan to save that customers in that market money, and then worked tirelessly to get in front of those people so they could make their case, and then be patient and letting time and perseverance take over, all the principles of success in an entrepreneurship play in your favor because you've actually set your ladder up against a wall that you can climb. When you're done climbing that wall, you are at the top. So he knew exactly what he could do to save customers money. And I loved the example where he said, hey, you're spending a half million dollars a year on tires, and we can save you $600,000 a year. And I mean, I really caught their attention because he looked beyond just what they were buying to their operations. That was really an insightful approach. So I, I won't spend more time on, on Tyler's, but I, that was the one idea that just jumped off the page when I was reading Kim's book. One of the things that you put in there, which I couldn't agree more with you, about your overhead, keep it as low as you possibly can in the beginning. You're not going to be bringing people to your office, at least initially, so you can work out of your basement for a while before you get things up and going and spending the money on marketing and things that you really need to do. The discipline that it takes to keep costs low and, and innovate around that, managing those costs is a key skill that will carry uh, an entrepreneur through the life of the business. Elon Musk rented a office space for his dorm room and was able to rent it out as a party space to help pay his rent. And that was his first office. That's a very innovative way to keep overhead down. Sure. You basically say, be very careful of partners. And I really like the way you put it. It's like getting married. Yeah, it definitely is. I've heard a lot of horror stories where partners basically make choices that you wouldn't expect when you go into business, especially as things go south. There's this grand vision of how things should go. You want them to go. But then there's all these curveballs, pivots. And those pivots are very challenging decisions that have to be made and extra hours and, and ideas that have to be created. And it puts maximum stress on your relationship with your partners. And again, in Kim's book, he talked about how his, him and his partner basically worked, developed a strategy for communicating and resolving issues. They had rules. And they, they, if they 
could not agree on, you know, an issue they never, they would not violate the agreement of that they wouldn't do it if one person couldn't convince. If you follow them, you can keep things going, but the stress is significant. Also, the whole idea of having complementary skill sets, starting a business, especially technology, is really hard. You know, Paul Allen, Bill Gates, the obvious example, but Paul was an assembly language guy, and Bill was the software guy. Bill had more business expertise than Paul, and they complemented each other, and you just go down the line, there's synergy. There are certain venture capitalists that throw money at things, and they don't understand the business. So that would be an example of a bad partner. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you have a vision today, but the market marketplace changes so quickly. And within a year or so, you're going to start diverting your interests. You're going to be going one way. They're like, oh, let's go this way. And I think that's where a lot of partnerships fall apart because going into business is a long process. You gave the example of Bill Gates and um, Paul Allen, and that's a great one. They did work together, but even eventually they parted ways, you know, and, and they had a really good symbiotic type of relationship to go forward and their strengths. Before I go, I wanted to ask you about your book, brain dancing you sent me a copy i love it um tell me what the inspiration was for writing this book and um this is your second book correct in college i realized that my future would depend on how well i did and when that hit me i started studying like crazy and basically got straight a's but i was studying incredibly long hours because i hadn't really been taught how to study nobody is really teaching how to learn how does your brain work how can you use the knowledge of your main mind brain interaction to study smarter and i ended up getting a book called uh, use both sides of your brain by tony Pizan. it basically took me from reading 50 books a year to extracting useful information out of 50 books every month there are so many great ideas so as a lifelong learner i wanted to have a framework for understanding this flow of information about how to be more productive and more creative and and learn faster and that's what my book became and i also published brain dancing for students published it on the web as a free book and that's that's my second book where can you get that book on the web go to my website braindance.com and under the uh, book uh, menu there's a brain dancing for students link there and can you get this other book, The Brain Dancing, one that has the forward by Tony Buzan? Buzan, yeah. Yeah. Can you get this on Amazon? Yes, it's available in Kindle format, and you have a few hard copy versions available. Well, good. Appreciate your time, and um, thank you very much. And st- Thank you very much. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Thank you to former Secretary of State Sam Sumner-Reed and author Patrick McGee for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. If you have any comments on what you heard today, you can call the hotline at 425-653-1166, and I will broadcast your comments, but please keep them short. That's 425-653-1166. Also, if you would like to listen to any previous Voices of Experience shows, Google KKNW, then click on to podcasts. A page will appear with all the radio shows airing on KKNW. Go to the very bottom of the page and then click on to Voices of Experience and you are there. Quote of the week, judgments in history seldom coincide with the tempers of the moment. Adley E. Stevenson. Have a great rest of the week.